The rogue sons of Israel's high priest have made a fundamental mistake. Thinking that the Ark of the Covenant is simply a lucky talisman that will guarantee the military success, they have taken the Jews' most sacred possession with them into battle against the Philistines. What they haven't factored in is that they are a bunch of corrupt thugs and that God is not going to endorse any battle which they engage in. Consequently, the Ark is now in enemy hands, a catastrophic turn of events which puts a considerable dent in Israel's collective mojo. A trophy and a kick in the teeth to Israel it may be, but the gilded casket brings the Philistines no joy. In fact, things go so far south for them that they can't wait to get rid of it. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible Episode 63 the Golden Rats. Hello and welcome back to all of you regulars and welcome to you if this is your first time listening to the Holy Bible podcast. What a silly name I gave it. it sounds just like Holy Bible. You search that you get all kinds of things. You don't get this podcast. Anyway, here you are. I'm very thankful that you are here. We are slap bang in the book of Samuel, which is one of the most page turning books in the entire Bible. If you like adventure, you are not going to be disappointed. As ever, the Bible that I reference is the New International Version UK edition. It's also worth pointing out that I am not a theologian, nor am I a priest. I'm simply an advertising creative director who is utterly fascinated at how this book has not only survived so long, but has impacted Western culture like no other. That said, it's time to get back to the action. Anyone who's a fan of Indiana Jones movies knows how important the Ark of the Covenant is to Bible history, and it's gone missing. Well, it's not really gone missing. The Philistines have nicked it after a battle and Israel needs to get it back. During its unexpected sabbatical in the Philistine cities of Ashdod and Ekron, the Ark is taken first to a temple dedicated to the pagan god Dagon. Dagon is believed to have been some kind of merman and is portrayed as half man, half fish. In Ashdod, the Ark's power is credited with knocking Dagon's statue over not once, but twice, breaking off its head and its hands, spooking the Philistines so much that they add new superstitions to their worship routine, such as not treading on the temple doorstep. When people living in and around Ashdod start to break out in tumours, the idea of the Ark remaining in Philistine territory becomes no longer tenable. The power of God is too great for both the Philistines and Dagon, and after the nation's leaders get their heads together, the Israelite sacred box is moved to the city of Gath. Here, the locals also find themselves covered in strange growths, and they pass the ark quickly on to the people of Ekron. In Ekron, the people not only break out in tumours, they begin to die, and in the ensuing panic, the Philistine leadership makes the executive decision to send the Ark back to Israel before it kills them all. After seven months of distress, the Philistines gather together their priests to work out what to do with the Jews' treasured box. A superstitious bunch, they feel that they should send a gift back with the Ark and that if they do, their tumours will be cured. 
The peace offering is an unusual one. Five golden tumours and five golden rats. The number represents the five Philistine leaders and the effigies are simply models of what has been plaguing the population ever since the Ark has been in their territory. The nation's wise men gather to tell their leaders not to harden their hearts like the Pharaoh who failed to release the Israelites from slavery in his country, as everyone knows how that particular gambit panned out. The plan is to load the Ark and the crate of golden gifts onto a brand new cart and hitch it to two cows which have never pulled a wagon before. The Philistines are to let the cows go, watching carefully to see which direction they take. If the animals head for the border into Israel, then God was instrumental in the tumour outbreak. If the wagon remains in Philistine territory, then the plague had some other cause. The ark is loaded onto the cart and the leaders and their priests wait to see what happens next. The Jews' most precious treasure is now winding its way through Philistine territory at the mercy of two cows pulling a cart. Given the elaborate blueprint for its construction given to Moses and the sacredness with which it is revered in Israel, this is a low point. The unattended cattle drag the ark along the road to Israel, followed closely by curious Philistine leaders. At the border town of Beth Shemesh, the beasts continue along the road, hauling their cargo away from Philistine territory and back into Israel. Here, the wheat harvest is underway, and the local Israelites are busy fetching it in when the cart pulls up next to a large rock in a field owned by a man named Joshua. Overjoyed that the ark has returned, the Israelites take control of their most holy possession. They smash up the cart to make a fire and sacrifice the two cows on it as the five men who rule the Philistines look on. Despite the locals wanting to show their gratitude for the ark's return, offering sacrifices away from the tabernacle is forbidden by Jewish law and Levite priests arrive to retrieve the ark in an appropriate fashion. They place it on the rock with the chest of tumours and rats. As Bible fans will know, looking directly at the ark is a crime punishable by death, even if this is done accidentally, and 70 people from Beth Shemesh are killed. The grieving locals appreciate that God is hugely powerful, but also want the Ark to leave their neighbourhood before it can do any more damage. A message is then sent to the neighbouring town, Kiriath-Jerim, sharing the news that the Ark is back in Israel and asking them to look after it. The holy box is brought to the house of a man called Abinadab and remains in relative obscurity in a remote settlement in western Judah for the next 20 years. Now, Samuel is fully grown and has already assumed control of Israel. As leader, he is the one who the nation looks to when facing a military threat. The return of the Ark has a seismic effect on Israel and it is nothing short of a spiritual revival. Words aren't enough. Samuel tells his people that they need to demonstrate their change of heart by giving up all their pagan gods. That way, God will have their backs in any battle with their Philistine enemy. To their credit, the people do throw away their idols, and on Samuel's command, they gather at Mizpah, which appears to be the place where he holds court. Here, they fast and confess to all their shortcomings, as Samuel promises to mediate between them and God. 
The Philistines may have returned the ark, but they are still intent on grabbing land from Israel. When they hear that pretty much all of Israel is gathered together in one place, they launch an opportunistic attack. Frantic and with everything to lose, the Israelites encourage Samuel to keep praying on their behalf. With homeland security hanging in the balance, he takes a lamb and sacrifices it, crying out to God to intervene. According to the book, God hears Samuel, and just as the Philistine army is closing in on Mizpah, a thunderstorm panics them. Unnerved and in disarray, the Philistines are easily picked off by the Israelite army, who chase them back towards the coast. Samuel then instructs the victorious Israelites to set up a stone to mark the place where God intervened on their behalf, and names the monument Ebenezer, meaning Stone of Help. The sentiment is that God has helped them so far, suggesting that he will continue looking after Israel. After this humiliating defeat, the Philistines cease to have the upper hand, and throughout Samuel's rule, they continue to concede territory in the western coastlands, which they originally took from Israel. Samuel continues as Israel's leader for the rest of his life, holding court in the religious centres of Mizpah, Shiloh and Gilgal, as well as visiting family back in his hometown of Ramah, where he builds an altar dedicated to God. Given that he rules all Israel, his circuit is a small one. All four towns are arranged along a 36-mile stretch of road called the Central Ridge Route. If your brain doesn't work in imperial measurements, 36 miles is roughly 57 kilometres. Samuel may be the Israelites' ideal leader, but he will not live forever, and his own sons appear no better than Eli's. Rather than oversee the spiritual well-being of the people, these clowns accept bribes and pervert the course of justice, and so are far from perfect candidates to rule the country. Enough is enough for Israel, and they track Samuel down to Ramah, where they put forward an idea of their own. They demand a king to rule them, just like all their Canaanite neighbours. Samuel is upset at the request, and turns to God, whose response seems clear. The people haven't rejected Samuel, they have rejected God. In the past, he led them by raising up men like Moses and Joshua, and, more recently, by appointing judges to rule over them. But Israel has moved on. The people are now more secular than they are godly, and this is why they want a king. God spells out to Samuel exactly what this ruler will demand as his divine right. Israel's sons will become his charioteers and foot soldiers. They will be his commanders and weapons manufacturers, his farmers, bakers and chefs. Their king will take whatever he wants from their harvest, and a tenth of all they produce will be shared among his favourites. He will take their servants, a tenth of all their livestock, and they will become his slaves. Eventually, they will cry out to God to release them from the tyranny of their king, but he will not answer. It's all just white noise to the Israelites, however. They have their hearts set on someone powerful enough to lead them into battle against enemy nations, and that person must be a king. It has to be deeply disappointing for Samuel, who believes that all of Israel's military successes have not come from any battlefield prowess, but from divine help. Within living memory, God sent a thunderstorm to scare and disorientate a giant Philistine army, turning insurmountable odds into an easy win. 
Still, Moses does describe the ideal godly king in the book of Deuteronomy, so having a king is not against the rules. However, the Israelites' desire for a king right now shows short-term thinking, born out of a need for national security and a desire for one-upmanship, which is why Samuel is so disappointed. After sending Israel's leaders home, he reports back to God, who tells him to give the people what they want. It's the end of an era. Until now, God has hand-picked his leaders because of their inherent faithfulness to him and the courage which this gives them. From the patriarchs to the judges, Israel has been looked after by leaders which it believes God has given it. Now its people are in uncharted territory. The age of the judges is over. The age of the monarchy is about to begin. To say that Israel's first king is a poor choice is somewhat of an understatement. Still, the monarchy begins with good intentions, particularly from Samuel, who has never had to find a king before. Saul is described by the book's writer as a fine-looking specimen, a head taller than other men. His journey to the throne of Israel begins when he and his servant are out looking for some lost donkeys belonging to his father. The men are from the tribe of Benjamin, but as they pass north into the hill country of Ephraim, which extends into Benjamin's tribal lands, the beasts are nowhere to be seen. Crossing back into Benjamin, Saul decides to head home to his father empty-handed. He doesn't want him worrying about them instead of the lost donkeys. Realising where they are, his servant has a bright idea. Samuel lives nearby and, being a holy man, he might possibly have a better steer on where the animals might be. Saul worries that they don't have anything to give Samuel, but the servant has a tiny amount of silver equivalent to one small coin. Hoping that this will be enough to persuade Israel's leader to help them, they make for the town. Samuel isn't hard to find. There is palpable excitement that he is in town to perform a sacrifice. No one can eat until he has blessed the offerings, and so the men's best bet is to grab him before the festivities begin. According to the book, Samuel has already been forewarned of this. The day before, he received what he believed was a message from God, telling him that he was about to meet Israel's future king. The man will come from the tribe of Benjamin and will release Israel from the ongoing Philistine threat, and Samuel is to pronounce him king. Rather than form a consistent, clear and present danger encroaching eastwards from the west coast, it seems that the Philistines ruled small pockets of land throughout Israel. However, this doesn't mean that they are not a problem, and having a king to help Israel counterattack is seen as no bad thing by the rest of the population. No sooner do Saul and his servant approach than Samuel gets a very clear message that this is the man. Saul is oblivious to what is going on, he just wants to find his donkeys. He asks Samuel if he knows where he can find the holy man, a rare moment of comedy in the Old Testament. Samuel lets on that he is the prophet, that he will tell Saul things that only Saul knows, and, as if to prove this, assures him that his donkeys have been found and are safe. Samuel also lets on that the whole of Israel is looking to Saul and his family for their hope, something that makes no sense to Saul. After the civil war in which his tribe was utterly decimated, Benjamin is the weakest state in Israel. 
Despite his misgivings, Saul accepts Samuel's invitation to a feast where he is given the best seat and a prime cut of meat left over from the sacrifice. To add weight to the fact that this has been preordained, Samuel had already warned the cook to keep the meat to one side as he was expecting a guest. The men retire to Samuel's house where they chat on the building's flat roof. The next day, Samuel sends Saul's servant home as he needs to prepare Saul for his role as earthly ruler of Israel. Samuel tells Saul that he has a message from God and pours oil on his head, a ritual known as anointing. Samuel then sends Saul off with instructions that will demonstrate that this is not the mad rambling of an unhinged old man. This is real. Two men will tell him that his father is no longer worried about the donkeys which have been found. He is now worried about him. A little further on his journey, three men carrying young goats, wine and bread will offer him some loaves. As he approaches the Philistine garrison near Gibeah, he will encounter a group of prophets playing harps, tambourines and pipes. He will join them and get caught up in their spiritual ecstasy. Samuel describes this as the Spirit of God working powerfully in him and tells Saul that the experience will be transformational. Once all this happens, Samuel assures him he will be ready to be Israel's king and God will be with him whatever he chooses to do. Once the initiation ceremony has finished, Saul is to travel to Gilgal and wait there for seven days until Samuel joins him to offer a sacrifice. Everything promised by Samuel comes true and soon Saul finds himself dancing and channeling the spirit of God with a gaggle of prophets, much to the bemusement of those who only know him as the son of a local farmer. Still, they know that becoming a prophet has nothing to do with bloodlines and appear to accept that this rough and ready young man might actually have been chosen by God. After all, the rest of the prophets in the elite Gibeah compound might easily have equally humble origins. Following Samuel's instructions to the letter, Saul makes for Gilgal where he climbs to their agreed rendezvous point. His uncle finds him here and wants answers. Seemingly uncomfortable sharing his new identity with his family, Saul keeps the conversation about donkeys and how Samuel helped him find them. Samuel may be certain that Saul is God's choice as Israel's king, all he needs to do now is convince Israel. He gathers all the tribes of Israel together at Mizpah for a debrief, reminding them of how God rescued them from Egypt and cleared Canaan of enemies for them, before criticising them for rejecting God and wanting a king to rule them instead. To prove that the choice of king is God's and not his own, Samuel makes the Israelites draw lots, tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family. The writer doesn't mention how lots are taken, but it is likely that Samuel uses the Urim and Thummim, possibly sacred pebbles, which give a clear answer when rolled. Saul's tribe of the Benjamites is chosen, then Saul's clan, and finally Saul himself. However, Israel's future king is nowhere to be found. Appearing to have been struck by stage fright or cold feet, he is hiding in a storeroom. When Saul is finally located and paraded in front of the whole nation, his height and physique make him an obvious choice as ruler, and a cry of, long live the king, goes up. 
This sets in place a tradition among those Christianised nations which still retain monarchs, where these words are spoken when a reigning king or queen dies or abdicates and their successor ascends to the throne. Samuel knows the law, explaining to the people how a godly king should rule, and even writing it down on a scroll. The book tells readers that this scroll is stored away while God looks on, suggesting that it is kept in or near the tabernacle where God's earthly resting place, the Ark of the Covenant, also lives. The mass assembly is dismissed and Saul returns home to Gibeah with a cohort of godly bodyguards. Not everyone is convinced. Some are dubious about Saul's ability to rescue them and refuse to offer gifts to their new king who remains silent on the matter. Regardless of their motive, the book refers to them as scoundrels, they are soon proven right. And so, the Israelite monarchy that lasts around 450 years begins. It's fair to say, no one really knows what they are doing here. Samuel has never made anyone a king, Saul has never been a king, and the Israelites have never had a king. Still, the suggestion is that God knows what he is doing, even if he does use Saul's reign as a kind of what-not-to-do teachable moment. Because listeners, while Saul is not the worst king to rule Israel, he is a long way from the best. The rise and fall and fall of Saul is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. You can, if you like, follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Holy Bible Podcast. That's Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, Bible, B-U-Y-A-B-L-E, not Holy Bible. That will give you something totally different. And if you like what you hear please do give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening because that means other people might get to hear about it too. Thank you.